Hugh Jackman, Rebel Wilson, and Prince Charles. Few would think to invite this motley trio to the same dinner party for what little they seemingly have in common, but it may surprise you to learn that, in fact, the three of them share a very fundamental commonality that would surely make for a lively dinnertime conversation. They have all ridden a Brompton bike. The Brompton, or the Brahmi, as my guest today referred to his, is a legendary British-manufactured bicycle dating back to the 1970s whose patented three-way folding design is beloved by urban cyclists around the world. Because of how compact it becomes when folded and the ease with which it can be taken on other modes of transportation, the Brompton has become synonymous with city cycling and is for many the commuting mode of choice. My guest today is Will Butler Adams, the CEO of Brompton Bikes and one of the most outspoken evangelists not only of the Brompton, but of biking at large. Today he joins me to make the case that of the many ways urban denizens move about their cities, there is one that is far superior to the rest, and that is on a bicycle. Stay tuned. CitySpeak is sponsored by Batoni Architects, an integrated practice of architecture and interior design dedicated to creating and defining the spaces in which we live. With expertise in residential and commercial projects, Batoni Architects works in collaboration with clients to design their futures. To learn more, visit Batoni Architects. That's B-I-T-T-O-N-I architects.com. Will Butler Adams, welcome to CitySpeak. My pleasure. Very excited. I think that many people might assume that the CEO of an international bicycle company like Brompton would be someone who had always had a crazed passion for cycling. But you've said that that was not the case for you back when you first joined the company. The story of just how you came to join Brompton is a delightful one. So can you share that story with us? Well, I can. I was brought up in the north of the UK which is not where all the trendy people are. They're all down in London. And I was a bit of a hillbilly brought up in the countryside and then went to Newcastle Uni, studied engineering, worked for five years up there. And funnily enough, I thought I was going to do an MBA. And it was a split between Kellogg in the US and INSEAD in France. And I was busy studying for my GMAT. And then randomly, I was in London. I was on a bus got on this bus, sat next door to this random bloke and got chatting as you do. I mean, you know, life is full of open and closed door moments. And this was one of those. And we were talking about the fact that I was an engineer. And he said, oh, well, a great friend of mine's an engineer and he makes these bikes. We got talking. And the next thing you know, he's saying, you've got to meet the guy. We need somebody. We need some help. You know, I'm sure you're just the right sort of guy. I mean, There's no way he could know I was the right sort of guy because he didn't know me. (laughs) But, you know, you get overexcited in these conversations. I then headed back up to Middlesbrough where I was living at the time. And in life, the easiest word to say is no. Yes is so much harder. And I just am a yeser. And so I thought, well, hey, why not? How interesting. There's a guy making bikes in London, never heard of the bike, never seen the bike. I'm going to go visit him. So I then booked a train, quite a big thing, went down to London. And I met Andrew, the inventor of the Brompton, mad, eccentric, you know, his trouser was tucked into his sock. He was pottering around. There was this factory full of stuff and prototypes and stuff and more stuff. And then squished into the corners, there were a few people actually making this bike that looked pretty peculiar. 
And to be honest, the bit that totally blew me away was just how technically inefficient this thing was. The factory, I mean, I'd been brought up as an engineer, Nissan, super efficient, lean manufacturing, and this was anything but. And then, you know, I got on the bike, whizzed around the car park, felt pretty good. And to be honest, I didn't think I was smart enough to go and do any of the uh, MBA stuff. And I'd lived up north. You know, I'd never lived in a big city where all the cool people are. So, you know, and he kindly said, well, actually, why don't you come and help me out? And I thought, well, what have I got to lose? I'm 28, cool people in London, great city. I'll do that for a couple of years. And then maybe I'll go on and do my MBA. And that was 20 years ago. And I'm still at it. When one pulls up Brompton's Twitter profile and reads the description that lies at the top, what you find are three pithy statements that to me encapsulate everything that your company stands for. And I think it really ties into your perception of the cool people of London to some extent. The description reads, made for cities, made for you, made in London. And I don't think it's an accident that the first of the three is made for cities, as it seems to me that Brompton has really built itself around the notion of being the urban dweller's bicycle. What does it mean for a bicycle company to be made for cities? So you asked me earlier about the fact that I wasn't some hardcore cyclist. I didn't even know what a Brompton was when I first met Andrew all those years ago. And actually, it wasn't the bike that drew me to the company. It was the inefficiency of the company itself. It was the engineering opportunity. But the reason I'm still here 20 years later is because I'm not an urban dweller. I'm not a naturally a city guy, but I was living in London. And this bike made living in London a blast. It gave me freedom. I had such fun. You know, I met my now wife there. And I had a T-type. And if you're a Brompton geek, you know what a T-type was because it's the one with the rear rack on the back. And like my wife, would she'd finish her work. I'd finish my work. We'd meet up some friends, go to a club or a bar. She'd then stand on the rear rack and I'd pedal three or four miles across London, having had one or two pints, either back to her place or back to mine with her standing on the back. And, <laughs> you know, I didn't get caught up. I couldn't afford cabs, the tube or the metro or the subway, which or whatever you want to call it, is pretty grim and depressing. And by the time I'd lived in London for three or four years, I knew everything. I knew every back street. I knew all the canals. I knew all the cut-throughs. I knew the cool little cafes that weren't on the high street. And I just loved being in London. And then the funny thing is, I started meeting our customers. And I'm speaking to them. And they said, you know what? This bike has changed my life. Hey, it's changed my life too. And then I meet someone from New York, LA, Seoul. Taipei, this isn't even a sort of Europe thing or a Western thing. It's an urban thing. And whilst our cities around the world are very different and they all have their own character, and that's what we love about them, there are many more similarities with urban living than there are differences. And this thing Andrew invented brings this sense of freedom to urban living, which we need. And the final of the three statements that I mentioned that Brompton really lives by, this made in London idea is also interesting, not just because of the experiences you shared, but I read that over the company's history, you've repeatedly insisted on keeping manufacturing in London. And you've stated on the one hand that a motivation for this decision is to protect the company's intellectual property, specifically the patented design. But I'm wondering, hearing what you're saying today, is there not a 
cultural element to that decision as well in that Brompton's identity feels somehow tied to its origins in what is one of the greatest cities in the world? Well, it isn't because of the patterns that we're protecting it. The reason we make the bike is because of the know-how. The patent rang out in 1998. But if you want to make a bike that's quite complicated because it has to fold up and you want to make it as light as possible, which slightly encourages you to make it too light, in other words, too weak, where if it breaks, it might kill somebody. So this isn't a toy. This is a very serious piece of kit. Knowing how to do that well, day in, day out, and know that that bike that somebody buys somewhere in the world in five, 10 years' time will look after them for the entire journey is not easy, and it requires enormous care. So that is number one. But we could do that somewhere else in the UK. Don't need to be in London to do that. And we moved factory six years ago. We could easily have gone to a different part of the UK. In fact, we would have been paid to go to a different part of the UK and take the jobs with us. But most manufacturing is hidden away. It's on some industrial estate. It's shoved off into some dark, nasty corner. Nobody sees it. And everybody has to go there in their cars. And it's pretty grim. And if you come to our factory, which you're welcome to do, you will see if you go in the door that I go in every morning, that there are about 120 Bromptons and about another 60 standard bikes there. And nobody's forced to use our bike. They use it because it's useful. And that really matters because we are permanently using our bike because we live in an environment where we use it. And of course, if you're involved in design, or even if you're not involved in design, if you're just a user of anything, the more you use it, you go, yeah, but hey, I think we can make that a bit better. Oh, that's slightly bugging me. And that works. And that gets into the company and allows us to improve the design. And second to that, London is one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the world. And so our staff currently come from 50 different countries around the world. If you want to trade globally, it's not about doing courses and looking up best practice. You need people from those countries in your organization who will say, oh my God, it's easy. Oh, friend of a friend, my dad's friend. I've got a cousin. Speak to this guy. And they give you the confidence to trade internationally because your staff will say, and it doesn't matter whether they're graduates or whether they're in their 60s, that culture that London gives us because it's so cosmopolitan so imbibes us with this ambition to be global. We could never be as global as we are were we not based in London. Hearing you describe how your manufacturing processes today makes me wonder how you feel when you think back to what we started with the early days when you first walked into the manufacturing facility and were amazed by how it operated in such a fashion that you weren't necessarily accustomed with as an engineer. Do you marvel at that at times, how far it's come? That is a good question. And yes, there are occasions. I mean, in fact, every time I walk into the factory, I'm proud of what we've achieved. And it is a big we because it's been a massive team effort. But you are also permanently dissatisfied. And the day you're not dissatisfied is a day to hang up your boots because we have done brilliant things. And I'm so proud of where we've got to and how far we've come. But we're riddled in inefficiency, shooting ourselves in the foot. Come on, guys, get it right first time. 
you know, optimization. And as the company grows, it faces new challenges. And of course, you've never dealt with those challenges before. So the first time you have a crack at them, you don't get it quite right. But that makes it exciting. It's so boring working somewhere where it's perfect. What you want is a little bit of chaos, a little bit of excitement, a little bit of fear, because then no day is the same. Then there are new challenges. You're having to stretch yourself. You're having to innovate, think about how you're going to solve a problem. And it keeps you fresh. And we've been lucky that we've been in a business that, from a manufacturing perspective, was probably in the 1950s when I joined in the 2000s, and we're still catching up. But at the same time, the business has grown from 35 staff when I joined, turning over like we're in pounds now, 2 million pounds, and we're knocking on the door of over 800 staff and knocking on the door of 100 million pounds. So it's been a bit of a mental journey. But that is a reflection of the impact we're having on society. We're not bothered about having loads of money and buying all this sort of endless rubbish we don't need, like millions of cars and yachts and silly stuff like that. If I've got a nice house and a few bikes to whiz about on, I'm happy. I mean, that'll do. That's a great segue because I want to talk to you a little bit about the impact that your company is having. As the head of the so-called Made for Cities Made in London bicycle company, you're someone who's knowledgeable about and I think vocal at times on issues around bike safety in cities and the need for cycling infrastructure like bike lanes. What do you see as the roadblock, so to speak, to making cities more cycling friendly? And do you see a role to play for Brompton in that effort? I mean, you've got to take a step further back. So in the last 70 years, there has been massive net migration to cities all over the world, U.S., in the same way as the rest. And it doesn't matter whether it's democracy, communism, you name it, net migration to cities. And somehow, it's like drip, drip, drip on the forehead. We have allowed the automobile to just be the owner of the city. I don't know how the hell we did it. We, we didn't even know it was happening. It happened so subtly. But it has happened to the detriment of society. So we have designed the place where most of the world lives around the automobile, not around the people that live in that space. Surely, as the apex, most intelligent animal on planet Earth, the place where most of us live should be the best place, the cleanest air, the most delightful place to live. And they can be. The architecture is wonderful. The culture is fantastic. There's great communities. But we have made a mess by introducing a one and a half ton human body squisher that belches out fumes. I mean, who came up with that as an idea? And when you think about it, in cities, you're traveling relatively small distances. Now, to be fair, in the US, those cities are over bigger distances. But let's just take one of the most famous cities in the US, in New York. You even have an island, for God's sake. It's the ideal sort of pedestrianized, light vehicle city. And yet, when I was last in New York, sadly, not for a while because of COVID, I saw more suburbans, which is the most preposterous thing I've ever seen in my life, which is like some ginormous four by four gas guzzling Uber with tinted windows, than I even saw Bromptons. 
And I was whizzing up and down Manhattan and I could get close up to those tinted windows and see there was nothing in most of them. They weren't even carrying anyone. They were just driving around and around trying to find somebody. So we need to rethink. And funnily enough, it's what we've all been through in the last couple of years is a real opportunity. If you go to a zoo and you meet a chimpanzee, the chimpanzee was born in the zoo and you say to the chimpanzee, now, how do you like living in the zoo? Chimpanzee goes, I love living in the zoo. It's great. I get my bananas in the morning. I swing around. This is awesome. Then you let the chimpanzee out of the zoo and you take him into the jungle for a few months. Now you shove him back into the zoo. Now you say to the chimpanzee, now, how do you like living in the zoo? He says, I hate living in the zoo. I want to live in the jungle again. It was amazing. Now we had that. We had a moment in COVID for all sorts of tragic reasons. We had a moment where we saw what city living could be like where the car was removed, where in many cities, they saw blue sky for the first time in a generation. And parents weren't clinging on to their child's hand, worrying that they might suddenly dash into the danger zone and get hit by a car. There's been this epiphany, this realization from most urbanites. Hold on, most people who live in cities don't own a car. They don't have the space. So they're giving up their life and the quality of their life for some transient vehicle that they don't even use. So there is a enlightenment and a change in perspective going on around the world. And of course, it's, it's rippling across the US in different ways, at different speeds and in different ways. And so it should. No one system suits all. But I think we've hit a Rubicon, a tipping point. And I think citizens want cities designed around them and their families. And it's all there for the taking. We can do it. A powerful, if not somewhat obvious, solution to increasing cycling in cities, I think, is simply to get people to love cycling. And so much so that they come to integrate it into just who they are. And I probably should have made this disclaimer at the outset, frankly, but I myself am a proud owner of a Brompton. And I will tell you that I'll never forget when I purchased mine from a local distributor. I won't forget how the cashier described Brompton owners. He said, it is a cult. And anyone who knows a Brompton owner, my friends included, knows just how true that is. We are absolutely crazy about these bikes. And unlike in a lot of other contexts, that materialism actually has real benefits for society, for our cities, for the environment. So my question for you in short is, how did you do it? How did Brompton manage to make something that might otherwise be considered rather utilitarian, cool and attractive? Well, ultimately, we have the Brompton, which is a very funky folding bike, thanks to Andrew. And he wasn't thinking of that. He basically just wanted one. He designed it for himself. And where we've been fortunate is in designing himself a solution for his particular needs, he designed something that's very, very flexible and very useful and therefore has a role to play for many different types of customers with different needs. But the bike's so flexible, it fits into their life as well. The point you make about people being crazy in a cult is because this product actually adds value to your life. Most of the stuff we buy, we buy too much stuff. We're persuaded to buy consumerism, a whole load of stuff that we don't ever need. 
but we get so much bombardment of oversold promises. We clutter our flats and our houses with a load of dross we never needed in the first place. And the next thing you know, you're watching programs about how to declutter your house and go and take it off to charity shop, or it ends up in landfill. I mean, this is a disaster. We need to buy less and buy better. So the reason it's cool is not because we try to make it cool. It's cool because it actually makes your life better. That's what's cool about it. And there aren't many things that deliver. Most promise, but don't deliver. But this thing sort of under-promises, because you look at it and you're like, yeah, well, I mean, what is that? Is that a wheelchair? No, no, it's a bike. A bike with those funny little wheels? I mean, is that going to, I mean, the pedaling, I mean, is that really going to work? And then you get on, you're like, oh my God, this is cool. And then you fold it up and you use it for this and you go, hey, hey, maybe I could use it for that. Oh yeah, cool. Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. Wow. And it's like, wow, this thing, and I'm fitter, I feel healthier, getting out of my city, reducing my carbon footprint. Hey, that's cool. It's cool because how it affects your life. It's not trying to be cool. And that's why it's cool. I'll close by asking you just to share your attitude looking into the future. And you touched on this in our last question. With biking and micromobility, generally just having taken on such an increased significance on a whole number of fronts, are you optimistic that cycling will grow as a preferred mode of transportation as we look ahead into the future? It's funny, you are asking me questions about cycling for which we have a product and a role to play, but I don't even look at it like that. I look at it as urban living for which walking, cycling, cargo bikes, we have a role to play in that, but it's urban living I'm after. And that involves architects, that involves planners, that involves politics. And we have a role to play and we fulfill a particular area of that solution. But I have been banging the drum about the insanity of the subway. They cost an enormous amount of money to build. You go under the ground. The air quality is phenomenally poor. It's bad for your mental health. And in many cities around the world, people are spending hours every morning and every night, day in, day out, in a little metal tube under the ground. I mean, how can that be good for the soul? It's not. And people have walked past me. Oh, yeah, you again. You know, oh, you complete nutter. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's still there ranting on. But suddenly, after like nearly 20 years, people are going, oh, yeah, hey, you have a point. That's interesting. And these are politicians. These are real influential decision makers. These are budget holders. And suddenly, people aren't walking past. They're listening and they're going, yeah, he has a point. Yeah, that, that's good. And this is so exciting, what is happening to the mood music of people even five years ago would have walked past. because. We have a climate crisis. We have physical health crisis, mental health crisis. And you're not going to solve this by more and more drugs. You've got to change the way we live. We've got to design activity into our lives in a really positive way. It's not about going to the gym and paying money and pedaling on a bike that goes nowhere. Because you can do that when you're motivated, but then when you're not, you don't do it because it's like discretionary. But if you just integrate it into your life, like you get out of bed and you start walking or you're going from A to B and you get on your bike. It's like, you're not going anywhere. You're just doing what you're doing anyway. And suddenly it just changes the whole landscape and it lifts the spirits. It lifts the health. It changes the dynamic. People talk to each other that's traffic lights. I mean, on so many levels, it's a no brainer. We just need people to not accept going back to the way it was before and politicians to have the confidence to do what they know is right. 
Will Butler-Adams, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Same to me. Thanks for tuning in to City Speak with Max Masuda-Farkas. City Speak is produced in partnership with Urbanized Media, with music and sound production by Greg Gordon-Smith and Source Code Creative Media. Be sure to visit urbanized.city, now featuring commercial real estate news in Atlanta, Austin, Chicago, Detroit, LA, and New York. Ooh.